turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 17, verse 1 through 9. Passage that we call the Transfiguration, which you might have guessed from the intro earlier this morning. It's Transfiguration Sunday. I invite you to hear Matthew's account of it. He says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as the light. And just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground, terrified, but Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken this morning. Whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. I've come to realize something. It might be profound. I don't know. I know that it is certainly frustrating. There's one thing I know for sure about miracles, and that is that they're not very useful. Don't get me wrong. They are wonderful, especially when they come to you. When you are in the midst of some need, there is something going on in your life. When something happens and and God's presence in some way comes just in the nick of time, whether it's in some provision you weren't looking for or uh, the the neighbor or, or something you couldn't have planned, miracles bring salvation and joy and freedom and release, and they are good, but they're not very useful, which is to say, You can't make any plans around them. I sat down to do my budget for the month. I don't look at the gap in what I want and what I got and everything else and say, okay, well, we'll just account for this with a miracle right here. When I'm setting my schedule for two weeks from now, I've never said to anyone, well, why don't we move that to Thursday because God's going to do a mighty work on Wednesday and I think our conversation will be more productive after that. You can't make your plans around miracles. The scriptures, the miracles of Jesus, they all come in different ways. It's not as if you could plan ahead of time how it's going to happen or what's going to happen. Sometimes when Jesus heals, he does so with a a word. Sometimes he heals by actions and sometimes by actually coming near and touching those who are in need of his grace. It's different all the time. Sometimes the miracles happen directly and sometimes they happen in very roundabout ways. There's this one story about how Jesus is on his way to do one miracle and then he gets diverted by another before he comes back and gets back to do something that no one had expected. Sometimes when Jesus does a miracle, it it brings the life of the party, like at the wedding of Cana. And sometimes Jesus' miracles are matters of life and death. 
They can be joyful. They can be serious. They're wonderful. They're all reasons to give thanks, and none of them are very useful. None of them have a lesson that can be applied or a way we can adjust our plans in the world. You cannot plan your life around them. They never come quite as you were expecting. And so it's hard to know what to do with, the, with them. It's hard to know how to apply miracles because they're not very useful at all. And, and when we come to Transfiguration Sunday, there's some sense in which we're coming to the least useful miracle ever. And seriously, what good does it do, Peter and James and John, that they're there on top of the mountain and they see a glowing Jesus and a glowing Elijah and a glowing Moses there on top of the mountain? Maybe it is a little bit of help if they are in the dark. But other than that, there's nothing that has fundamentally changed for them. It's not entirely clear what they are supposed to do with this new information they have received. What happens because of the transfiguration? What on earth changes? It's not even a particularly good testimony to who Jesus is. I mean, I think that's kind of the the standard uh, explanation of the transfiguration, the standard account for it, the standard commentary is that in this moment, Jesus' true nature was revealed in a powerful way. But when it's all said and done, Jesus tells the disciples, don't tell anybody what you've seen. It's not even particularly useful as a witness. And as we've already mentioned, it's not as if Jesus did this for a whole lot of people. It's just the three of them there. And we might say that it was really useful if it empowered their courage, if it gave them something to fall back on, but a few weeks later, we know that they're gonna stand in Jerusalem as Jesus stands before Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate is gonna ask, who are you? And at that moment, what good does it do that there are three people who have seen him in the fullness of his glory One of them will deny him, and the others will run away. What good happened here? Peter tried to find some good in it. I I love this about Peter. In the moment of the miracle, in the moment of the transfiguration, Peter just speaks up. He says, this is good. And he says, it's good that we're here. We're validating this for you. Jesus seems to think, or Peter seems to think that Jesus is some sort of holiness generator, that he's going to provide the power, and then, and then Peter's going to provide the application. Okay, we're going to figure out something to do with this, Jesus. You go on doing your thing. You keep on shining. We'll figure out how to publicize it. We'll figure out how to make something of it. We'll make three booths for you. One for you, one for Elijah, one for Moses. Perhaps the idea came to Peter because he knew that there in Caesarea Philippi, where Matthew says this took place, they were in a place where there were lots of shrines. Shrines at the bottom of the hill of Mount Hermon that had been made for all the Greek gods. And maybe Peter was saying, now we're really going to show them. How about we build shrines for you, Jesus? We'll show everybody else that everything else is just a sham. Maybe Peter just thought it'd be cool to stay up there for a little while, to camp out for a little bit. That word shrine that is used, it could be a booth, it could be a hut, it could be a tabernacle or a shelter. Maybe Peter, when he saw Jesus and Moses and Elijah, maybe he thought that this was like that moment on Mount Sinai when Moses went up to receive the Ten Commandments and the law of the Lord. We're told that when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, his face was shining. 
So maybe that's what Peter had in mind. Maybe he thinks that he's about to receive a new commandment from God. Maybe Peter thought of Elijah and the time that Elijah uh, ran away from the prophets of Baal and then discovered God's glory. Moses and Elijah, we are told, are the two from the Old Testament who had come closest to seeing God's glory. Elijah stayed on his mountain for 40 days of fasting. And so maybe that's what Peter had in mind. Maybe he thought, if we stay here 40 days, maybe that'll get what we need out of this. Maybe that's what God is doing for us. Peter thought it was his job to take this moment and make something useful out of it. To figure out what sort of 40-day practice what sort of discipline they could make out of it to bring something to the cause. Peter was going to take this awesome power that's being poured out on the mountain and he was going to turn it into something useful. And we like that about Peter. He's the take charge kind of fellow. He's going to get stuff done. But then the voice comes and says, Peter, you have no idea what you're talking about. Peter's chiming up, he's chiming in, he's got all these good ideas. I know what to do, and he hears, why don't you listen to my son? Peter saw Jesus standing alongside Moses and Elijah, who represent for the Hebrew people, for the Israelites, for the Jews, the law and the prophets. Alongside Moses who gave the law, the law and Elijah who is the greatest of the prophets. And Peter says, yes, Jesus is one of them. We should celebrate this. We should do something with it. And God was saying, no, he is not one of them. He's my son. And Peter fell to the ground and he was struck dumb because he did not know what to do with that. It would take him a long time to put it into words. In fact, it was at the end of his life that Peter wrote the epistle that we now have in our scriptures, and we call the second letter of Peter. And in writing it, he says, quote, the Lord has revealed to me that I'm not going to be with you very much longer. And so I want to make sure you know this. And then Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, by his divine power, the Lord has given us everything we need for life and for godliness through the knowledge of the one who called us by his own glory and power. And through his honor and his glory, he has given us precious and wonderful promises that you may share in the divine nature and you may escape the world's immorality. That sinful craving reduces through his honor and glory, he has given us precious and wonderful promises so that you may share in his divine nature. That's an unbelievable promise. That you can share in Christ's divine nature. How on earth could Peter believe something as astonishing as that well, he tells us, he says, we don't repeat crafty myths that we told you when we talk about the powerful coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Quite the contrary, we witnessed his majesty with our own eyes. He received honor and glory from God the Father when a voice came to him from magnificent glory and said, this is my dearly beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. 
Took him to the end of his life for Peter to know what to say and what to do with the transfiguration, but now here he is at the end of his life and he knows that he is going to receive glory and that we are going to receive glory because he was there when Christ received it. And what's more, he was there when Moses and Elijah received it. That's what was happening in the transfiguration. In the moment, Peter thought it was a great thing that Jesus is gonna be ranked with Moses and Elijah. But now he realizes here at the end of his life that it was through Jesus that Moses and Elijah became great, that Jesus was not entering into the realm of the great leaders of faith, but instead Jesus was giving Moses and Elijah something that they had never known before. He was giving them a glory that would never fade. And that's what Peter says God is doing for all of us. He's allowing us to share in his own divine nature. Right there in front of Peter, Moses and Elijah are learning to partake in the divine nature of God. It's right there in front of them that they are in front of Peter, that they are being adopted as the children of God through the grace of the firstborn son of God. And Peter says, that is what we were made for. We were not made for the job that we do. Not even made for the kids that we raised not made for the neighbors that we take care of. We are made to share in the divine nature and everything else is the how. Everything else is how God is inviting us to share in his own nature. Jobs and kids and neighbors, these are all the places and the gifts by which God is giving us the opportunity to share in the divine nature that particular image of God that has been placed in you for a particular time and a particular place. God made you to shine in all those places. And whenever that happens, it's a miracle. It's a miracle for you and me to carry the divine nature of God and it doesn't always seem very useful by the ways of the world, but it's what we were made for. We can't plan it. We can't schedule it. But we can live lives that do not make any sense unless they exist by a miracle. And I wonder, what part of your life makes no sense unless Jesus Christ is raised from the dead? What part of your life depends upon the divine nature to make it make sense? Because that's the question we ought to be asking every time we try and share our faith. We know we are not gonna accomplish the evangelism or the salvation of the world by our own merits, by our own good words, because we are good enough. It is instead a risk we take. Every time we share our faith, we are taking a risk trusting that our lives can only be good if God responds with a miracle, with a changed heart, with a transformed life. It's a miracle that we pray and we depend on. We, we try and live our lives in a way that gives glory to God, but we know it's a miracle whenever anybody says yes. Miracle's the only thing that could make sense of our desire to welcome new members into the family of faith. I mean, when you think about it, every person who joins this church changes it. That's just the way it works. This church that we love, 
This faith that we love, this community that we love, it's continually being changed and we are allowing it to be changed by new brothers and new sisters and we're okay with that. We say it's okay, it is good for you to be here. And we say outrageous things like we say to the newest person in the family of faith, your voice matters just as much in this communion of the saints as our voice does. We welcome folks anyway. We invite them to shape us, to change us, to transfigure us in the image of God. And we open our lives and we say, this place only makes sense if it makes sense by a miracle. It only makes sense if we are open to receiving the next thing that God is gonna do for us. Every time we put ourselves in a place where our plans for control fall short, where our dreams are bigger than anything we can accomplish on our own, that's a miracle. We share in the divine nature when we realize that the miracles of God are more than useful, they are transformational. I think of a missionary friend, Doug Turbin. Think of the time I had lunch with him. He was making a stateside visit back from his mission in Thailand. He said, Michael, I was so frustrated. Those first two years that we were there, we spent so much time preaching and telling others about God and seeing no response. And then he said, in this third year, everything seems to have changed. It's like a miracle, he said. So there's this guy, this guy who heard us and ignored us, and he finally believed. He's an immigrant from Burma who's come over to Thailand. He has no rights in the factory where he's working as a wage slave to his boss. And he comes to me and he says, my boss man treats me so bad, but now that I know Jesus, I know that he is not my Lord. The boss is not my master. He treats me so bad, but I don't get angry with him. And I don't take it out on my family like I used to. Because I know that man is not my master of my emotions anymore. Jesus is my Lord. That's a life that depends on a miracle and a situation that's not gonna change except that the man says, I now have a chance to witness to the boss man and I can love him. That doesn't make sense unless Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. I wonder what part of your life doesn't make sense unless Jesus is raised from the dead. I think of John Brooks. John's a, a pastor, retired now. I didn't know him very well until he became my roommate for a, a conference event I was at several years back. And the moment we were assigned to, to room together, the only things I knew about John was that John was a Vietnam vet. I knew that he'd lost an arm from here down. And I knew that he was the pastor of Metropolitan UMC, a, a Methodist church on the south side of Montgomery. I grew up in Montgomery, and so that seemed like a helpful place for me to start the conversation with John. I said, John, how are things back in my hometown? And he said, oh, let me tell you, we are celebrating. He said this time last year, there'd been eight or nine homicides, most of them in our neighborhood right near the church. He said this last week, we had only the second one in the city for the whole year. So I tell you, it's beautiful. I go into stores and the public places around us and I see those signs that say, your guns are not welcome here. And I see people changing lives with violence around them in the neighborhood of the church. He said, it was so bad last year. One of the leaders of my church came to me in my office and said, preacher, if you're gonna work late, you need to carry this. And he put a 45 on my desk. 
And John said, and I looked at it. I said, get that out of here. I've lived that life. I've been the military police. I feel confident enough that if someone comes up to me, I can do enough to protect myself. And if they're armed, well, I may not be able to talk them out of it. But at least I can show them Jesus. Now you might argue, John's plans were not very useful. But I swear, his face was shining when he said that. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.